welcome. I'm Jillian Raymond, the co-creator of Juicy Bits and the Coalition Snow Ambassador. And I'm Jen Gorecki, your co-host and the CEO of Coalition Snow. For those of you who are with us in Season 1, we are glad you're back. For those of you who are new, get ready to laugh, cry, and maybe pee your pants a little. Juicy Bits is all about taking conversations that we start on the chairlift and at the trailhead and even at the dinner table and bringing them to you bi-monthly for productive, meaningful conversations that explore alternative narratives to the conventional dialogue about what it means to be a woman in modern society. Grab your helmet because sometimes it's a bumpy ride. FYI, this podcast is for mature audiences, so you've been warned. Let's get to work and juice the patriarchy. Hi, everyone. This is Jen Gorecki, CEO of Coalition Snow, and I'm thrilled today to be able to introduce to you Emerald LaFortune. She is the director of the Redside Foundation, a nonprofit that supports the health and strength of Idaho's outdoor guiding community. She's also a whitewater and fly fishing guide, a freelance writer, and in her spare time, she makes ridiculous fly fishing videos with her favorite anglers. I think we might have to get a YouTube link later. Emerald, welcome to Juicy Bits. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my my pleasure. So in just a few minutes, we're going to get into what it's like to work in a male-dominated industry, some of the various issues that you faced around harassment and discrimination as a guide. But before we jump into that, can you just give our listeners and give me a little bit more background on who you are and how you ended up on Juicy Bits today? Sure. So I have been an Idaho guide for the last eight years. Um, And I now work for a nonprofit called the Red Side Foundation, which is a 501c3 that supports the health and strength of Idaho's guiding community. So we do that through uh, mental health services, physical health services, education scholarships, professional training grants, and then also community building. And a big part of what I try to do with Redside is uh, have conversations about how we can make sure that all of our guides in Idaho and beyond have Uh, healthy workplaces where they can thrive. That's really interesting. I, so I myself used to be a whitewater guide. I never got to the point professionally where I wanted to, because I wasn't trying to make a living out of it, but I did my guide school and guided a bunch of trips. And actually at at one point was the co-owner of a rafting company. So I also have this pretty extensive background in that industry. And it's interesting that you actually worked with a lot of female guides because my experience was that you didn't see a lot of women in the industry. And when I moved out of just being a guide into this leadership role, because I was one of the owners of the company, I found that my experiences in working with men, and they were all quite young, right? Like they're, most of them were under 25. It became really difficult. And anytime that I would need something to get done, you know, I was either the fun police or I was told that I was like basically taking away from their experience on the river when I was trying to do like risk management and things like like that. I'm glad to hear that you were able to actually have these female guides who are role models and mentors for you. But I'm I'm curious, how did they deal with the harassment? How did they tell you to manage it? They, you know, I think at that first 
company, we didn't necessarily speak of it as harassment. This was, I'm trying to think, this was about 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. So by no means the early ages of guiding, but definitely not the conversation that we're starting to have today, almost a decade later. So I think then the conversation was really around, you know, it's just things like almost every night, all the guys would go out to the bars and wouldn't come home till two thirty, three o'clock. And some of the women really gave me a good community as far as saying, hey, it's okay to not want to do that. You know, I was struggling with the physicality of guiding as it was without being massively hungover. So just having a group that sort of showed, I think they led by example in a lot of ways. They would sort of show me, hey, it's okay to not go out to the bars if that's not what you're feeling. It's okay to tell uh, that senior guy to go away when he comes and sits next to your bunk at 3 a.m. and wants to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you. And you have to be up at Mm -hmm. 7 the next morning. Um, They were just sort of a sounding board. And I think more than speaking directly to harassment or discrimination, they sort of showed the way through their actions. And I definitely closely watched what they put up with and what they didn't, if that answers your question. And I think that evolved as I got into, you know, moved into guiding at a different company and sort of the conversation changed and my views around it changed. But early on, it was really just seeing sort of women taking up space and I think speaking to your point of the, the fun police, I think that's something I hear and see often in the guiding industry. And my favorite example was this woman named Rachel, who was on our crew, and she was a phenomenal boater, super strong. Um, I think all the men on the crew really respected her her boating abilities. And she was very sort of soft-spoken and kind, but also she didn't drink, she didn't party, she didn't, she sort of was out of that scene. She would wake up every morning at 6am and play country music, and then go for a run, you know, while everybody else was like, Mm -hmm. scraping themselves off the sidewalk from the night before. Uh, And I think it meant a lot to watch how the crew really embraced her. Um, It sort of taught me that you didn't, that there wasn't one way to be a river guide. And that was really valuable. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, do, do you think that these other women and that maybe even you at the time, that you innately understood that the culture of this rafting company and even sort of like the river community was something that was relatively hostile toward women, but you didn't feel like you could say anything about it. Whereas today we live in such a different time where women are actively encouraged to speak out about these issues. Do you think it's that these women didn't perceive it to be harassment? Or do you think that they didn't feel like they had a voice and had the resources to help them navigate these issues? I think it was definitely a lack of of voice and resources. I think there's been a culture around guiding, like a lot of outdoor sports and spaces for a long time of sort of women entering a boys club. So there's this feeling, and I don't know if this was was part of your experience as a guide, but sort of this feeling of you have to play by the rules already 
set up and the rules are, you know, sometimes super fun rules. Like if you flip a boat, you have to drink a beer out of a neoprene booty or something, you know, like there's lots of, of ways yeah. that that culture yeah. is full of camaraderie mm-hmm. and, and fun and friendship and family. But there's also definitely times when I think a lot of women just feel like they like it's an honor just to be hired or it's an honor just to be on the training trip. And they exactly like you said, those voices, I don't want to say the voices weren't there because I think they've always been there, but maybe the voices weren't being as paid attention to by senior leaders and owners. Yeah. Well, and it's, you add in alcohol, you know, like drinking is such a part of this culture and not a lot of good things come with that. You know, you talking about people peeling themselves off the sidewalk in the morning. Absolutely. Like there's just so much drinking and the, you know, the minute that you're done with a trip, the end of the day, like everyone's at the bar or everyone's having beers. And I think that adds a lot of layers to what women face. And even more so too, is that there's so few women um, and there's so many men. And a lot of times you're guiding and in, in living in, in sometimes like very remote areas. And as one of the few women, there's, you know, you are sometimes looked at as like, you're the new meat. Who's going to get her? You know, like who's going to get to have her? And then you just put alcohol with it and it's difficult. It's so difficult. And alcohol is such an interesting part of what guides do on the river. I think I am slowly seeing that culture change. I always joke that like the Red Side Foundation should be sponsored by LaCroix or coconut water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because I'm seeing more guides sort of, especially on multi-day trips where yeah. you're really working, you know, I think daily trips, you've got this kind of set. You get back to the guide house to wash life jackets at, at five or six. And for a lot of people, that's the end of your interaction with the customer or the guest. Uh, whereas multi-day guiding, you're really living with your guests for six or seven days, you're out on the river. So your behavior, your alcohol use does reflect back on your company. So maybe now that I say it out loud, maybe it's the outfitters driving that change partially as well in the guest experience. But alcohol is a really interesting conversation because I actually, I was in a room uh, last year with my multi-day outfitter where they were talking about requiring two guides per night to be totally sober to not drink at all. And the conversation mm. and and a, there was a lot of pushback from a community mm-hmm. I actually consider to be pretty pretty responsible with their alcohol all things considered and compared to a lot of companies and cultures and so there was this big pushback and it was interesting for me to think about you know what role does alcohol play for us as guides And I think in multi-day guiding, you know, you're sitting down, you're talking to a bunch of people that you're just getting to know. There's often a huge economic economic range between a river guide and the people that are paying for these sort of highbrow highbrow river Mm -hmm. and outfitted trips. And so that alcohol becomes a social lubricant, not only between guides, but also between guests and guides. Um, mm-hmm. As well as sort of, you know, the thing that really came up for me was like, how how do we reward ourselves 
at the end of the day? How do we acknowledge that we had a big day, that it was hard work and that we want to celebrate what we accomplished that day, whether it was just a fun family float where you got to talk about the landscape or if you were running class four and you flipped and you got everybody back in your boat in a timely manner. So I think when we start to think of alcohol that way, then then it becomes a conversation that has more room to sort of find replacements. But that's speaking about alcohol sort of in the like relatively moderated use. I think that alcohol in the wild party use way, um, I mean, it becomes a conversation really similar to the conversations we see with, you know, happening on college campuses. Yeah. Rape culture and with consent and everything else that comes along with that sort of young, younger folks typically who are figuring out their limits. And like you mentioned, that like fresh meat thing with women yeah. on guiding cruises is, is very real. I wonder if, um, you know, because one, one of the reasons why you would say that there need to be two sober people a night is really, it's a risk management thing. Like you need to make sure that you have people who are capable of responding to any issue that comes up. But I, I wonder how the culture could shift if outfitters also recognize that as a means to mitigate harassment um, and sexual assault within their own company and, and on, on trips, just this, this acknowledgement that when you pair adrenaline activities with excessive drinking and the gender dynamics that, that doesn't, that's not really a good mix. And it, it would be interesting if to see what, what would happen if the business community could actually push that forward as another step toward risk management, but not in the conventional side of, of safety, but on the emotional health and the, the emotional side of things. That's a great point. And when I hadn't thought of, I think that it sort of ties into the conversation with guiding around bystander intervention um, and sort of looking out for each other. I think, of course, it's much easier to be able to get the bird's eye view of a party scene and take care of your fellow guides if you're also not, you know, on your fifth tequila shot or amid the whiskey cyclone. I mm-hmm. I think the guiding, you know, and I'm I tend to be <laughs> a bit of a rule follower and, you know, I'm all about <laughs> risk management and certifications and lists. But looking at the broader guiding community and thinking about, you know, I think a lot about what's what's the reality of where we can meet this culture today and where do we want to see it grow to. And I think with guiding, there's such a like sort of a, a Wild West independent spirit type culture going on that the more you can you know, the more you can convince, sort of convince people that it was their idea to not drink a mm-hmm. couple nights a trip, the more success you're going to have than sort of the top-down um, management decision. Because the reality is that a lot of these trips are out for six or seven days. The outfitter or the owner isn't necessarily on that trip. So if you don't have, I think if you don't have buy-in from your guides, it can be really hard to make change. And I think that conversation is changing across the board with outfitting when it comes to risk management 
and sort of not being um, above or below, so to speak, the law. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't want to speak to say that that will never happen, but I hope that guides see the benefit for themselves and their communities as well. Yeah, for sure. So er earlier you, you mentioned um, this woman, Rachel, who had provided some guidance to you on how you could manage some, some of this, but I'm, I'm curious now in, in um, all of the years that you've been accumulating as as a guide, what have you seen work for women, some specific strategies to help them navigate these issues that we see in the guiding industry? That's a great question. And I think I like to talk about this in terms of what we do now to deal with the bullshit and then how we also set ourselves and our daughters and our daughters' daughters up for uh, the future because I think it's important to recognize that there were a lot of first women that sort of set the stage for where we are today and we should continue that legacy. But as far as the right now, I think of it, it's sort of like, um, like a running a rapid or skiing where you need to react. You're reacting to what's under you and around you right at that moment, but then you're also looking at your line downstream or downhill and figuring out where you want to go. Um, so I think for the like right underneath us, one of the most powerful things that's helped me and I think helped some of the women I've been lucky enough to mentor is to just have a prepared response ready. Um, fellow, mm. fellow guides and the party scene and all of that is sort of a separate conversation. But a lot of what female guides are dealing with is sort of low-grade harassment and discrimination from their guests. And I try I try really hard to remember that for a lot of guests, they, I'm the first female guide they've ever seen. You know, I'm the first yeah. fly fishing guide that's a female they've ever seen. I'm the first whitewater guide they've ever seen. I do not have a giant beard. I'm only five feet tall. Like, it's, it's sort of a... <laughs> I don't fit their expectations coming in. And a lot of guests are just really, um, they're really scared. You know, this, this wilderness yeah. experience or, you know, if you're ski guiding or trail riding or whatever, um, it's, it's really familiar to us as guides, but it's really out of the comfort zone for these individuals and families that are joining us. So, um, so I really try and think of it as educating them in how to treat a female guide. So an anecdote around this is this one time, so I generally guide in like a sun hoodie or a button up shirt. And it's, you know, it's more about sun mm -hmm. protection than anything, but we had gotten to camp. And during the day I had been talking with this gentleman about how I used to be a competitive gymnast. Um, and so we, get to camp, he gets off my boat, I change into a clean shirt, make dinner, then I'm doing dishes and he comes up to the dish line and says, hey Emerald, I noticed when you took your shirt off that you definitely have the muscles of a gymnast. Uh, which is like mm -hmm. one of these things, I think women in, in these outdoor spaces, guiding or not, get those kinds of comments a lot where it sort of raises raises your hackle a little bit, but it's also this weird feeling of, you know, am I crazy? Was that creepy? I don't know. I know he meant well, but also I feel really weird. 
Um, and so my well, yeah, because they they mean it. They mean it as a compliment, but then you realize that people are looking at your body, right? Right. And that's what's so awkward is you're like, well, I, I, you know, you can recognize that people are trying to compliment you, but why are you? I'm here professionally, and I'm not. My looks shouldn't have anything to do. Yeah, it just gets. It's weird. Anyways, yeah. Continue. Sorry. You understand the weirdness, and I'm sure you yes. get it plenty. Um, but instead of, you know, I think often those comments like that really catch us by surprise, and we sort of laugh mm-hmm. it off. And I hear from a lot of the the women that I've worked with and helped sort of navigate how to start guiding and learn the guiding world that they feel they're disappointed in themselves after when they don't say something. So I really train myself and women to just have like a really simple response. So mine is that comment was inappropriate and it makes me pretty uncomfortable. And you just leave it at that. And of course, you know, this gentleman, for example, like was like, no, 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 I meant it as a compliment. You could be my daughter. You know, they sort of do the whole back Mm -hmm. back backpedal. And I think you, you know, I like to give people sort of a strike, I give them, you know, I give them a chance. And if they continue yeah. to really put yeah. boundaries and be creepy, then that turns into a different, you know, hopefully a conversation you can have with your crew. It's about getting yourself through the rest of the trip as safely as possible and hopefully making sure that they're never on a trip with your company again. But yeah. but like with this guy, you know, I just said that's inappropriate. He got the message and we were able to continue forward you know, with the trip and and continue to have a good time. Uh, So I think in the short term, having a canned response is really helpful. Um, And then I... But that's really brave too, though. I mean, I can see see a lot of women um, and even some men as well who might be, you know, who might have inappropriate things said to them, not feel comfortable being so direct because we want to be so badly liked. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not unreasonable to think that if, if you, if you say that to someone that like potentially someone could be like that Emerald, she's a bitch oh, yeah. or don't, you know, like, of, of course. Right. Like, so you're just basically standing up for yourself and saying something very appropriate in a very respectful way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, that what you say is going to be accepted. So I can just imagine some of our listeners now thinking to themselves, like, I wish I had the courage to say something like that because I actually don't want to be judged or I don't want people to dislike me or how would they be able to manage the potential um, downfall or like the, the downside of that? Do you have, has that ever happened to you or do you have any strategies on how to manage the perception of, of, of that? You know, I think, that's a, a great point. And I've been lucky enough to, you know, work my multi-day trips in an outfitter where I feel like I could say that, bring that story back to my crew and they would have my back, bring that story back to my outfitter mm-hmm. and he would have my back. And I recognize that that's a, um, a lucky, a luckier situation. No, no, fuck luck. Luck should have nothing to do with it. That should be the norm. Right. <laughs> I really hesitate to say, like, wow, I'm so lucky to be treated like a human on the river. Um, I know. <laughs> uh, you know, that that should be a standard, I think, but isn't. I think that if you can find a community, even if it's not in your direct, the direct people you guide with, you know, so 
um, if you're struggling with this, I, I volunteer myself now to be your community in this, finding, you know, talking with the folks that you sense that you might be able to trust and sort of starting to build some rapport with them and be able to have a conversation with them about how how they deal with it. I, you know, my response to this is always like, go find a different outfitter that supports. Yeah. But someone called me out on that recently, uh, justly so, because guiding is so hierarchical, you know, it, mm-hmm. it really, and I'm sure you felt this at your company, it really values sticking around uh, in, mm-hmm. in terms of pay, in terms of leadership. Often if you go to a new company, you're starting back at the bottom, you know, as a, as a back. Yeah. Owner. With all the shit trips. Yeah. With all the shit yeah. trips, um, you don't get to trip lead. You don't get to be on the mm-hmm. class three, four section, whatever it might be. So I think that, you know, you just change it the way women and men have been changing things for century, which is you start by starting to have some conversations and then you start to organize. And, and I think it's important too to recognize that we do have a lot of, we do have a lot of male allies out there on the river and that men, you know, the big, the big conversation or the bigger part of all of this is that guiding is a service industry at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And the service industry just inherently has so much sort of a danger might be too strong a word, but I don't know. I think danger could be the word uh, because the guest is always right. The customer is always right. Um, so, but that has to change. I mean, that absolutely does. has to change too. I mean, my the way the way that I see this is like it's like a sorry, not sorry, right? <laughs> like, oh, you think I'm a bitch? Okay, and like, why the fuck do I care what you think about me? I don't. Yeah. You know, like I feel like women have to get to that point where if you are standing up for yourself and saying it in a respectful way and 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 really considering everything that's going on in that situation, like we as women have to start saying those things to protect other women and to protect and other, you know, newer generations and really build an outdoor industry and a guiding industry that we want to be in. And if our greatest fear is being called a bitch, well, then you might want to cease to exist as a woman on this planet, because you're not going to really be able to stand up for yourself and then also go through your entire life without someone at some point um, making those comments about you. And, and I, I like that you brought up this, this concept of a male ally, because I, believe that one of the ways that we can really address this is that um, the men that we work with, whether they are the outfitter or our fellow guides or clients, um, can stand beside us and support us when when these situations happen. One of the reasons why they're so challenging is because women have been left to manage them on their own. We are the ones who need to say things for ourselves. And when I think about a lot of the situations that I've been in and even been in recently, the thought of if I would have had a male ally there, how much that would have made the situation better, but also made me feel better. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the role of men in addressing these issues. I think this is the million dollar question. And it's so important in these spaces that are still male dominated. Um, I actually, a few months ago, I whipped out this blog post um, called the Me Too Guide for Outdoorsy Dudes. 
and the internet, you never really know like what's going to land and what's not. And it just went, and I'm not bragging because 99% of the things I write, this doesn't happen. But with this one piece, it just went viral and went everywhere. And it was such a wake up call to me that this is really a part of the conversation that people are ready to have um, about how, how men can be allies and can help. Because at the end of the day, often in a guiding crew, you're a family and those guys want mm -hmm. you to thrive and mm -hmm. be healthy and happy just as much as you feel that way for them, at least in a healthy, you know, a healthy situation. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think the most basic foundation of it is to ask the question and listen. So, you know, I was at a conference last December and we a woman presented about sexual harassment in the guiding industry and the presentation was good. But then the really cool part was after I walked over to this circle of guides, some male, some female, and, and the men in the group were like, has that happened to you? You know, mm -hmm. and the women in the group, one's an outfitter, you know, all senior guides, all very well respected, all said, yes, it's happened to us. Here's five examples. Um, yeah. And so I think that like that is a great starting point. It can't be the ending point, but it's a great starting point. And I think also understanding that a lot of women have, especially the ones that have sort of clawed their way to the top of something like guiding, have been pretty conditioned to not talk about it or to yeah. not um, want to, you know, people, guides especially don't like framing themselves as uh, victims. They very much, if yeah. guiding is about like being in control of your boat and yourself and your guests mm -hmm. and this very wild landscape. And um, so understanding it might take a while to build that trust before a woman wants to speak about those experiences if she does it all. And that's sort of her, her right. I think beyond that, you know, you can take that out onto the river where a lot of times, like I've had male guides on a trip be like, Hey, I'm noticing how, you know, Bob over there is is looking at you and it's pretty weird. Like he's watching you change in the morning. Um, he seems to want to be on your boat every day. Is there anything I can do? Uh, yeah. And that's a great place because sometimes it'll be like, no, I think I got it. You know, I can handle this. And other times I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, I don't, you know, it just says like, I see you. I see that you're at a disadvantage out here in this way. How can I help? intervening in conversations that look uncomfortable, you know, changing the subject. And of course, when people are, when the men around you are being overly perverted and gross or telling awful jokes or, you know, I think, I, I don't know if this has happened to you, Jen, but I've had instances where I'll be sitting on a boat and a bunch of, you know, where it's, it's a crew break and a bunch of guys are talking about a woman just with this language where you're like, I understand you're not talking about me and you see me as one of your parts and one of your bro, mm -hmm. but how, you know, how am I supposed to walk? How do I walk away from this? Um, so sort of calling out those conversations because when I call them out, I'm seen as like the whiny bitch, feminist, tight ass, blah, blah, blah. But when you call it out, there's a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-old boys watching you as a senior guide and as a leader and as a male. And they're learning, you know, they're learning your behavior. They just want to fit in. Yeah. 
Yeah. And even, even, you know, in, in addition to the way that um, men speak about women, also the way that they speak about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the number of times that I've heard men talk about the size of their dicks, <laughs> like I don't care. No one cares. No one needs to know. I understand that you're a heterosexual male. And by speaking about that, you're letting me know that you're available. I understand how you're using that to also show your dominance and power among the rest of the group. But it's not just a simple statement of the size of your dick. And so I feel like that's another place where men can be supportive by encouraging appropriate conversations in in general. And I'm I'm not saying that you would never talk about sex because I think having part of moving forward is that we can actually have healthy conversations about sex and in, in, in intimacy. So I'm not suggesting that we completely shut it down, but just looking at what is being said and why is it being said? Is it appropriate? Cause probably the only time you should be talking about the size of your dick is it's like, uh, well, never, I guess actually now I was like trying to think of no, never. You just don't need to. You, um, you flip that and you're like, uh, oh my gosh, my clit is so big. You know, like and, and <laughs> anytime I'm like, is this weird for them to be talking about that? I'm like, what would be the female equivalent? Yeah. What would be the response if you were sitting around being like, you know, suck my clit? Like, that's going to have, yeah. that, that seems so raunchy. Whereas, you know, the like suck my dick motion mm-hmm. was like a hello greeting at the first company I worked at, you know, so it's sort of a funny, like, flip it and see what the response or sort of like how that would Mm -hmm. be received. And then you decide if it's appropriate or not. But I think you do such an important thing that I'm sure that uh, Juicy Bits has talked about before, which is that patriarchy doesn't just hurt women, it hurts men. And I think guiding when it's done when the culture of guiding is done well, it's such an incredible opportunity for humans just to be humans. You know, I think you see men really taking on these very nurturing roles. They're the nurse, they're, they're cooking, they're making people comfortable, they're checking in, seeing how they're feeling, they're helping ease their fear. Women are having the space to be, you know, to move the heavy commissary box and to row a raft or a drift boat or, you know, take the lead through through avalanche terrain or whatever it might be. So so I think that's a great conversation we also need to have about like what is toxic masculinity looking like out yeah. guiding workplaces and and how do we serve the men around us too by letting them know that they don't always have to be unafraid. Yeah. Well, and let's, I mean, let's get even like a little bit, a little bit deeper here, because it's, it's easy to talk about all of this in binary terms of men and women. But, you know, one of the, you know, there's always an elephant in the room when like two white women sit down and talk about these things is that like, we're both white middle-class women and we think it's tough to be a guide. And I'm curious, what are some of the different challenges that you've seen for women of color or for LGBTQ plus guides is that are, have you, have you encountered that? Have you seen similar things? Is there a whole different set of challenges that that community faces? And I just would like to touch on that for a moment. I think that is such an important question and it always sort of makes me like laugh, cry 
in this industry? Like, you know, that emoji that's like has the two blue mm -hmm. streaks down its face and you don't know if it's sobbing or laughing or maybe both. I see this in guiding. I see this in fly fishing and outdoor media. It's like anytime a bunch of able-bodied, attractive young white women are disrupting an industry, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> you're mm -hmm. like, really? Yes. If I'm... If I'm disrupting, <laughs> if I'm the one, space, yeah, if you know, I'm the one who's shaking things up, right, okay. Then like, what must that? And I don't know because, like you said, I'm a, a white middle class woman living in Idaho. You know, I can't and wouldn't speak to that experience. But I think that um, this is definitely sort of intersectional feminism 101. But I think as a largely white and privileged community, we really need to be thinking about those around us. And we need to be thinking not only about breaking our glass ceiling, but also breaking ceilings and barriers for those around us and being ready to like elevate those other voices. I think you, you because again, those voices are already speaking. Uh, we just tend not to search them out or to listen. And I think that a huge part of this is hiring. And I think if you asked any outfitter, you know, for example, in a place like Idaho that tends to be pretty homogenous, why aren't you hiring guides of color or or another marginalized group? They would say, oh, well, nobody, you know, nobody applies. And I just think that's such a half-assed answer, right? It's like, yeah. no, try harder, you know, like why take it one step further? And I think we're starting to see our outdoor media do this, and I'm really excited about it, but I would love to see that come over to guiding and outfitting in, you know, why don't you have people of color applying? Why does a trans man or woman not feel comfortable out here? What are you going to do to make this more um, accessible and interesting as a career? Because I think at the end of the day, you know, if you can't see it just from the the social, social, cultural importance i think that you can see it as far as the you know your bottom line and your financials go you are bringing in customers and guests from all over the world all over the country and the more diverse your guides are in all the different ways that you can be diverse the more they're going to connect with a guide i think that we're starting to see like for example there's an outfitter in Idaho who does LGBTQ specific trips and the outfitter mm -hmm. himself is a gay man. And so, and I think that's really important too, right? It, it's pretty mm -hmm. trite to say like, oh, we're gonna have a, a rafting trip for African-American youth and then not have any, um, any mm -hmm. leadership or guides that look like those kids or identify with those kids who are coming out with you. And so I think that these, more specific targeted trips are received really well. And I can imagine that they feel that if you're coming from our city centers into rural Idaho, you don't necessarily trust that as someone who identifies as LGBTQ plus that, that you're going to have a good experience. And you sure as hell don't want to be three days into the wilderness and realize that everyone around you, um, you know, doesn't believe in your humanity or whatever. So I think that mm. seeing the success of trips like that, I'm hoping that that will start to permeate outwards into the rest of the industry as well. 
But at the end of yeah. the day, I think it's me um, closing my mouth and really thinking about how can I bring, how can I use the privilege I do have to bring other suggestions and experiences forward. So with all the bullshit that you faced and all, all the things we just discussed, um, what keeps you coming back for more? Why, why rivers? Why guiding? Why? I mean, I think at the core, it's, I'm, I'm from Idaho, born and raised. I grew up boating with my family. And anytime somebody says, go to your happy place, like I recently got a bunch of dental work done, you know, and they're like, oh, just, you know, imagine yourself mm-hmm. somewhere <laughs> nice where you feel relaxed. And I like instantly go to the middle fork of the salmon and surrounded by big granite canyon walls. There's green water. A cutthroat is rising up towards my fly. The sun's on my shoulders. Like it's just these river canyons and a lot of the places that we guide in the West and throughout the country are some of our country's most incredible landscapes. And, you know, a place like the Middle Fork of the Salmon, for example, is permitted. Um, So if you want to be down there more than once or twice a year, guiding is really one of the best ways to get to live in these really cool places. Um, And the people that you get to work with down there, too, for the most part, you know, I think when we have these conversations, we're often talking about a few bad eggs that sort of make the whole bunch smell Mm -hmm. and I think that the people that you get to work with in guiding become just become like family and it's a really cool relationship um I think speaking more career-wise and practically guiding made me a way better boater and angler than I ever would have been otherwise like there's something that really sort of pushes you to excellence when you not only have to take care of yourself, but you're also taking care of someone else. And I think I really, I care deeply that every woman and every person that wants to be able to access that level of training and skill in their outdoor sport of choice has the opportunity. Because even as I start to move away from guiding, I just, I feel like I have this whole incredible set of hard skills and I know I'll be able to use them on the river for the rest of my life. And that is, is really important to me and both my career moving forward, but also just how I get to live in and experience the West. I think my most, some of my most inspiring moments as a guide have been when I realized that there's other, well, as a female guide has been when I realized that there's other women who have experienced something mm-hmm. similar and feel similarly and are similarly indignant about it. And I know that not every woman has that in her direct community. Well, Emerald, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. It was great to chat. Yeah. And as always, we would love to hear your feedback about this episode. So if you have questions for Emerald, if you'd like to know more about her work, if you have experiences as a guide, please reach out to us. You can send us an email at juicybits at Coalition Snow, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Jen. Thank you.